Welcome to Think Orphan, the podcast for orphan excellence. Real talk with real people navigating the global orphan crisis. Let's join our hosts, Phil Dark and Kelly Stewart. Welcome to episode five of the Think Orphan podcast, where we seek to help you navigate the orphan crisis with experts from around the world. Phil, who's joining our conversation today? I was able to sit down with Chris Marlowe, who is the founder and CEO of Help One Now. He's also a whole lot more than that. He's a coach, he's a speaker, and he's an author of a new book that's coming out pretty soon. It's called Doing Good is Simple. And Chris is a guy who really deeply understands relationship, just human relationships and how to deeply love others. He's incorporating that into all the work that Help One Now and and he and he, and he is doing around the world. And Chris is a guy who really truly believes in empowering high capacity local leaders in in the countries that they're working in. He believes in using mission trips and using people's human capital to do incredible work around the world, but only if you're doing them in really um, uh, in ways that really empower the people that you're doing them with. So it's not doing stuff for people; it's doing stuff with people. And he's a guy who really understands the importance of alleviating poverty and strengthening the dignity and the and the the true human capital in the work of orphan care. And so we talk about all those things and more in this in this conversation. And I really look forward to hearing from everyone out there about how you have in, encountered these same things and how you are engaging these same issues in the work you're doing. I totally agree. I think the uh, listeners are going to want to take a lot of notes and join us um, at the thinkorphan.com website just to hear what they might be processing in a new and different way based on the conversation that you and Chris have. So let's get to it. Well, Chris, it's great to have you on the show today. Awesome. Hey, man, Phil, it's good to be here. Super excited to, to join your podcast and be a part of this conversation. Yeah, I'm so excited to get into your book, uh, the new book that's be coming out pretty soon, Doing Good is Simple. Um, but before we do that, I, I just want to say to you, um, I absolutely love it when I feel like I know the author better personally after reading a book. And your vulnerability and transparency in writing this book absolutely accomplished that. And I just want to thank you for that. Oh, thanks, man. I think the goal was to, you know, I wanted to write a book that people could read in a couple hours and feel connected and then when they, you know, when they closed the book, they, they knew that God had given them gifts, talents and passions to make an impact in the world. So um, hopefully that will that will take place. Well, definitely shine through. I, I can say that uh, it was something I flew through and really, like I said, I really appreciated it. So I think you accomplished your goal. Um, when people read that book, as I said, they will get to know you. But a lot of the listeners right now, they, they don't they don't know who Chris Marlowe is. Can you just share a little bit uh, about yourself, how you got to be where you are today? Absolutely, man. Yeah, it's kind of interesting, right? Like I, I grew up in Northern California. Um, and um, for those who think I was a surfer or something, I was not a surfer. Um, <laughs> I grew up in the valley where it's 110 degrees um, in the summertime. But um, part of kind of part of my experience, I didn't grow up in church at all. Like as a as a 16 year old kid, if you would have talked to me about Jesus, I would have been like, I'm not sure historical figure, no connection to deity or salvation. Um, and long story short, I was trying to hook up with um with, with a girl and get a date and she invited me to this camp and I thought I was going camping out in the Sierra Nevada mountains 
And I realized I was going to a youth camp and nice. there, there was a, there was a speaker there speaking about the Bible like 10 times in five days. And so, um, <laughs> but it took that experience. I became a believer and, um, kind of immediately felt called to ministry and church planning and in general. So, um, that's my backstory. I ended up, you know, moving to Texas and now here in North Carolina and um, planted two churches in the last 10 years. And um, out of one of those churches, we kind of launched Help One Now. And now somehow today you uh, not only are leading that organization that you uh, founded, but you're a speaker, you're a coach, you're an author. Um, I, I imagine that uh, 10 years ago today, this wasn't the master plan. This was not the master plan. My assumption would be I'd be eating tacos in Austin, planting a church, and um, enjoying life. And um, I, I tell you what, man, I've, I've read scripture over and over and over, and all those moments where you would read about the poor and the orphan and the widow. Um, and I knew in, in my mind that God had called us to engage in, and uh, be a part of solving key problems in the world. But as a pastor, man, I just kept making all these kind of crazy excuses and reasons why. Um, I didn't have um, an intentional way to live that calling out. And a friend of mine invited me to Zimbabwe in 2007. And so um, before that, and I share about this in the book a little bit, is God just kept whispering to, to my spirit that I needed to be involved and engaged. And um, I kept ignoring that whisper. And eventually um, it became more of a knock. And um, I ended up in Cape Town, South Africa and Zimbabwe for, for, for 10 days. And um, part of the Zimbabwe experience is I met a, a starving orphan at a gas station in 2007, and um, I felt like God kind of slapped me in the face and said, hey, wake up. This is why I need the church to be involved, um, and I need you you know, to be obedient to that scenario. And so I'm glad God did that, and he was patient with me, and he's patient with all of us. Um, but ultimately, that one moment at that gas station literally changed my entire calling and trajectory of life. And I definitely strongly encourage everyone to pick up the book and read this story. It really is a fantastic, uh, amazing story of, of just uh, how God can call someone into something out of the blue and often does. And out of that came Help One Now. I mean, out of, like you said, an encounter with this little boy at a gas station came an organization that today is helping children all over the world in amazing ways. And the way you describe it on, on your website is a Catholic catalytic tribe committed to caring for orphans and vulnerable, vulnerable children by empowering and resourcing high capacity local leaders in order to transform communities and break the cycle of extreme poverty. Can you unpack that for the listener just in what yeah. you do and help one now? That's a, that's a lot of stuff. Yeah, it's a lot, right? That's, um, you know, that's like, I, I get up and I do my best every day to live out kind of that expression and that mission. And um, after I came back from Zimbabwe, I, I had a conversation with the church and our elders and um, our co-pastor at the time, a guy named Jeff Mangum. Um, and we just we just kind of had this decision that like, hey, Marlo, you, you God is kind of gripping your heart to figure this out. And so I, I spent about a year researching, um, you know, kind of all the scenarios. Um, obviously, one of the most important books I read was When Helping Hurts and another book called Walking with the Poor. Um, and I just begin to like really understand that there's a good and a bad way to, to care for the orphan. There's an emotional way um, where we're gripped emotionally, which is powerful. But if, it's, if, if there's not also intelligence and wisdom connected to the emotion, we can actually be trying to help someone but do more harm in the process. And so here's what that means to us. We, we, we believe so much that an outsider should be as invisible as possible in these communities um, that are suffering from extreme poverty. Everywhere I would go in that year, um, I, I kind of toured the world a little bit. 
Um, and I would always see like one of one of me, you know, someone with with my color skin and my education level um, and, you know, an expat leading these ministries in these countries all over the world. And I would rarely see a local um, being the leader. And I thought, how are we going to change these communities if, if, if innovation is not coming at the local level? We can't just rely on outsiders. And so uh, we kind of just made a decision in the early days that helping now was going to stay invisible and that we were going to kind of submit to these key leaders. Um, so here's the challenge, Phil. I know this is difficult and we definitely have not figured out the best or the right way to do it. It's all, it's just, you know, it's hard work. But um, we, we just really believe in this model that high capacity local leaders should be leading the charge and we should be serving them um, from the background. So um, these leaders had an issue. They, they would spend most of their time caring for vulnerable or orphan kids. And so they were never able to get to the development part of the work that they were passionate about because they were just trying to figure out how to feed kids. And so um, we needed to solve that problem. How do we help these leaders be able to focus most of their time and attention on doing the big picture work in their community? And so um, vulnerable kids for us is pretty simple. It's kids who are on the edge of becoming orphaned. And if we don't intervene in their lives and keep their families together, then we're going to have to literally build an orphanage instead of them living with their family. We thought, we don't want that to happen. So, um, and then obviously there's the orphan crisis. You know, we all know the data and the orphans. Um, and then community transformation for us is, is kind of four, four, fourfold. Um, community development is, is spiritual development, it's education, job creation, and healthcare. And if those four things aren't interacting and intertwining, um, then it's going to be hard for the community to thrive and not rely on outside aid. Man, that is some good stuff. And I, and I know that uh, just in my conversations using the, with you in the past, the high capacity local leaders, that is something I know you've told me before. Um, and I, I agree in so many ways. The, the key, one of the keys to orphan care, wiping out extreme poverty, alleviating orphan care really is that pouring into those local leaders and equipping them with what they need to really be able to do this stuff. Yeah, right. Absolutely. I think it's, you know, if you think of ROI, if you kind of take a business term like that, I mean, our return on investment, um, I can, I can get kids sponsored. We can build projects all day long. We can raise money um, to do those types of things because folks really do want to help and they want to make a difference. But the foundation is really human capital. These are men and women who are created in God's image, who are gifted and who are talented and who are passionate. And they're far more passionate about their communities than I am. And so what I begin to realize is if I walk into these communities and I begin to solve problems for them, I was really ripping the dignity out of their out of their lives and out of their hearts. Um, and they just would see me as someone who's coming to give money or to solve problems as opposed to to seeing themselves as like the individuals who are called to solve the problems in their communities. Now, the cool thing about that is they they have challenges that are fierce. And so they absolutely need people like like us to surround them and to help them and to care for them and to, you know, to kickstart their dreams and also to, to help mm-hmm. solve problems together in unity. So they don't need to do it alone or without us, but they also don't need us leading the conversations um, as well. We need to do it in partnership. But I realize this, if, if, I, if I leave these communities, it will change certain things if our org left, but ultimately these brilliant leaders are going to continue the mission that God's called them on, and they're going to do that with or without us. Yeah, and that's so true, because at some point, no matter you know whether we're talking five years, five minutes, 50 years, 500 years, the, the expats, the non-nationals, they're going to leave at some point. Yeah. And, um, and that's just the reality. What's going to happen after? And so rather than waiting till then, let's... 
let's cut to the chase, cut the middleman and, and make it happen right now, right? Yeah, and I think here's the challenge, Phil, with that. It's it's interesting. We have to be willing to fail if we're going to innovate, right? Mm. And so nonprofits, we're all so stressed about donor relations and making sure we use donor money really well because we want, we want to honor the generosity and we want to make an impact. But ultimately, we, you know, nonprofit still is a business that we have to run. So we begin to realize, let's surround ourselves with people who don't mind if we fail, as long as we're trying to innovate. And so at, at times, will this thing go bad because we don't have enough staff in country? Yeah, it may go bad, but also the beautiful thing is what if it goes really well? What if we actually are invisible and it's literally led by local high capacity leaders and they're building up other high capacity leaders? And so in our, I mean, we're serving thousands of kids around the world. And we have three um, expats living um, around the world. We have two. We have a couple in in Uganda and and one twenty something in Haiti. And that's the only infrastructure we have on a global basis. Wow, that's great. And one thing that's in in implicit and underlying all of this is something that I have. Um, it's something that again has encouraged me greatly about. Uh, you is your commitment to collaboration with other organizations, other individuals to accomplish the work before you. Yes. Now we all know that collaboration is hard work. Y- your book dedicates a chapter to it, and it's throughout the whole book. Besides that chapter, and uh, there's some great stuff on in the book. But you know what I want you to talk about today is just share um, how are you able to foster these healthy partnerships and collaboration in the work Help One's now is doing around the world. Yeah, it's interesting. I um, I think, you know, we all have opinions and philosophies and what works and what doesn't work. Um, but ultimately, if we were all honest, um, even even those who are considered experts, um, man, this is just really, really tough work. I mean, trying to, you walk into a community like Haiti and there's 80% unemployment rate or you go into the Congo and you're dealing with a whole generation of individuals who have been through this massive war and you're like, what do, what, am, you know, like really like, wow, this is hard. Um, and so you recognize quickly that it's going to take an army of people and organizations who have different talents and gifts and expertise all coming together. And um, if, if, if we can do this, if we can put the kingdom first and the mission first and not our organizations, um, we can come together and we can really do some powerful collaborative work together. Also, when orgs do that, it sets the pace for the local leaders to realize, you know what? They don't have to build their own little mini empires, right? They can actually collaborate with other, you know, leaders in their community to get things done as well. Um, and so I think a lot of it was just culture, trying to create this, this, this trend that when I enter into a community, I'm one piece of an overall puzzle. And I want to see that whole puzzle put together. And if I'm going to do that, then I got to go out and find other pieces. Um, and people are going out and finding us. And so... We just want to be able to close our eyes at night knowing that these communities are getting stronger and healthier and more beauty is happening and more and more advancement is taking place. And the only way we're going to do that is if we do it together um, and not and we're not worried about donor money all the time or who gets credit for every story or or, you know, what story is going to be in the end of the year impact. Like we have to put the mission first and all other things will work out much better. Well, that's great. Now, I'd like to just jump into the book a little bit. So, doing good is simple. Making a difference right where you are. Yeah. First of all, how'd the book come to be? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, um, my friend, Jen Hatmaker, um, we had just come off a blogger's trip um, in 2012. Um, we had about seven or eight bloggers down there, and Jen and I are in the Miami airport, 
and we're going through security and she saw, you know, you need to go write a book and tell the story. Um, which at that point, uh, my English teacher in sixth grade probably died um, because <laughs> um, writing is not my thing. I mean, I'm a speaker. I'm a communicator. I, I love meetings. I love to negotiate. Um, but writing is I'm just not I was never I never considered myself a writer. Um, so it took about a year. And then I realized, you know what? These stories, I think, need to be told and I think they can be helpful. And one of the reasons I wanted to tell the stories is because when we talk about development work, it's overwhelming for most people. But to me, the job of the professional, people like us are called to like get into the gritty part of development. But for the masses, they don't have that opportunity and that's not really even their calling. They're called to help care for orphans and vulnerable kids and fight poverty and seek justice. But you know, they, they don't have the time that I have because I do this vocationally. And so how can I give them a tool to realize they can make a huge difference in the world um, right where they're at? Yeah, and throughout the book too, there's a there's a recurring theme as you might imagine. The word "simple" mm. is uh, you distinguish it from another word that some people might uh, think of when you say "simple." Mm. And uh, can you? I assume you know what I'm talking about here. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Why don't you yeah. go into that a little bit? Yeah, it's not easy, <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, it's like simple is. There are certain things. I'm. Mean, I just you know, I was at the gym this morning and I did 100 lunges. Um, nice. And I was thinking, it was really simple. I had one exercise to do. Um, I kind of got part of the whole CrossFit chaos. Uh, <laughs> and I'm just following my coach. It's like 100 lunges. Um, by about 60 lunges, I wanted to die. You know, like this is not this is not easy work. And so what the book is not trying to say is alleviating poverty is, is easy. But, but how the masses can get involved. You know, how everyday normal people who have families and jobs and they're involved in their local church – and they just are like, man, I want God to use me. We can make it simple on how they can get involved. And then the professionals who get up every day and kind of do this for a living, they can deal with the nitty gritty. And I think what I was seeing, Phil, was so many folks were, were burning out in the justice conversation. Um, you know, right. they got so passionate about adoption and, and orphan care and, you know, anti-trafficking work. And two or three years later, I would see them disengage. And I began to wonder why. And I realized the reason they were trying to do too much. They were actually trying to, you know, to, to be the hero or play even the Messiah card or feel like, man, you know, this is my responsibility. And, and you know, it's just not our responsibility. It's, it's ultimately it's God's responsibility. He calls us to engage, but we have to find rhythms and ways that we can engage long term. And so the book is really, you know, it's really challenging people to realize, like, I, I can't solve all the world's problems but I can do something amazing and beautiful and God will use us to do that without completely overwhelming, um, you know, me and the rest of my life. Right. And it's, it's that idea that you, you probably aren't going to be able to change the world, but you can change your world and a little part of the world. And in that, if we all do that together, like you talked about in the collaboration, then all of a sudden the world start does start changing. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, Phil, that's the, I think that's the key. Like when we all jump in and do our part, it makes it easier for everyone and we don't burn out and more people are blessed and they get helped. Um, and so it's absolutely important for people to be intentional and, and figure out how God's gifted them and what resources and networks they have. Um, but ultimately they don't have to jump all the way in. if like they're drowning. You know, you can, you can take a step or two at a time. And, um, I think we'll make a greater impact long-term by entering slowly and, and, and integrating, um, seeking justice into our entire lives for the rest of our lives. 
Yeah, that's great. And and as you said, I mean, this this book is story driven. And this book is, there are so many good stories in this book, and I can't wait for the, re, the listeners to be able to read it and to be able to share in that. But I'm, I'm just going to let you choose from one of three, the, uh, three stories that, yes. uh, that I'm going to give you here. And uh, the, the rest of them, the, the listeners are just going to have to pick up the book and read. Sure. Um, but the, uh, the three stories that, that kind of jumped out at me uh, for various reasons were Don the Dentist, mm. um, The Ice Cream Dad, yeah. And then how the Legacy Project 2012 came to be. And so take take uh, one of those and uh, and share it with the, with the listeners. Wow, man, that's great. Um, so those are all what I think are really really beautiful stories. I'm gonna I'm gonna do the ice cream story, right? Because I think this is um, this, and, and hopefully you know I won't cry because I remember the story so vividly. It's it's in the same community where I met that young boy at the gas station. Um, and this was about five years into our journey, partnering with this community and kind of seeing the struggles and also the progress um, in the community. That's one thing with any, any anti-poverty you know, poverty alleviations. You see beauty and pain every day over and over, mm-hmm. just a mixture of it. And um, some days you feel like you're winning the war. And other days you just want to retreat and like put the white flag up and say, man, I can't. Like, I don't know what's going on. And so, um, but ultimately, the, the we're in Zimbabwe and we're... Um, meeting with this mom and dad and, and their young boy, and um, he, we had given them a three hundred dollar micro loan, um, and they had started this business. and he he had he was he was actually works full time, um, and his wife started this business on the side, and he would kind of manage the books and the marketing, and she would actually implement the business day to day. So it became this really cool family partnership. Um, before they started the business, they made about two hundred US. Um, monthly, which in Zimbabwe actually was was pretty pretty good, uh, but but still, you know, they were struggling to survive. But they had a job, um, and so our, our pastor, Pastor John, um, you know, said, "Hey, I think if we give these this couple a micro loan, you know, it's going to really help their life in ways that we can't imagine." So. Um, Eight months after we'd given them the micro loan, I was there visiting um, with the community leaders and our kids. And um, I remember sitting down with, with this family, and um, the the dad, you know, showed me the progress of of, of the micro loan, like basically chickens everywhere that they were raising up and selling in the local market. And um, I remember after about an hour and a half conversation about business and marketing and all these variable things. We, we walked out and we're getting ready to leave. And um, I looked at this dad in the eye and he go, man, tell me how, how has this business changed your life? And he looked at me, <clears throat> he looked me back in the eye and pretty much said, oh, this is amazing. He goes, you know, every Thursday night I can now afford to take my boy to go get an ice cream. I've never been able to do that before. And it just, it's the whole humanity, right? Like God created everyone in his image and there are certain things we all desire. And if you're a father or a mother, um, it's just really simple, man. You want to take your kid to get an ice cream cone once a week. And this micro loan was able to provide that. I thought he was going to say, you know, (laughs) a house or, you know, some savings or three meals a day. And all those things are actually legitimate. He actually was able to do that for his family. But what he mentioned to me was the fact that he was so proud to take his young child to get an ice cream once a week. That's just such a beautiful story for so many reasons. And uh, again, that's just a taste of what, uh, what uh, the book is full of. Um, another, another quote that jumped out at me in the book was, was this uh, quote. It says, compassion will help us to be vulnerable, which will then create a healthy posture of listening and learning and trying to understand the why before we try to fix everything. Mm-hmm. Vulnerability will create transparency 
And when we are transparent, we can have a sense of belonging and a safe environment. And I want that, that quote, I want you to speak about it in the context of short-term missions. Mm. And the book talks about that a lot. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there's so much talk. You mentioned When Helping Hurts. You know, a lot of people have interpreted that book, I think mis, uh, misinterpreted that book to say short-term missions are bad all the way around. Yeah. Um, share with us, you know, how short-term missions can be some of the best things out there. Yeah, it's interesting, Phil. I think um, I think there, there are layers to this conversation. And I think one always starts with, the, the elder and the pastor of a church, right? And so if we begin to shape our short-term missions as relationship building, as mm-hmm. the priority and not project focused, right. um, I think it changes the conversations because yes, we need to do projects, but ultimately projects, you know, don't matter as much as relationships. And so um, when we enter a community, um, we enter very slowly and we just listen and we learn. Um, and in my mind, you know, I just, this is just the way I'm, I'm operating. I can think of a million things I should say, Oh, we could do this. We could fix that. What about this? Um, but, but I begin to realize like the, the, I, you know, I have two ears, one mouth. I need to listen more than I talk. And so, um, the posture of listening is absolutely vital because when I leave that conversation, I don't want to have just a strategic plan. I want to have a strategic plan, but with the locals' dignity in mind. So I don't want to come in there and solve all the problems. I want them to feel the weight and responsibility of being a leader. And I want them to understand that you know it's, they're the ones that God's called to solve the problem. And then we will help them. Um, so I think short-term missions can be can be amazing. Um, one of the one of the realities with that is when I was in South Africa on that first trip, just literally about nine hours before I met the boy at the gas station, I was um, in a village and I I I saw this orphanage that was a multicolored orphanage, um, and I asked Pastor Willie, who's he's like this crazy local South African pastor. Um, they, they, this community didn't have clean water. They could, you know, they were struggling for food. They were struggling. The church was kind of run down. The orphanage was run down. Um, But I asked Pastor Willie, I said, Pastor, why why are there so many colors in this orphanage? Um, And he goes, oh, well, every year we have um, groups that come down in the summer and we don't know what to do with them. So what we do is we have them repaint the orphanage and then they they play soccer um, with the kids. And um, my friend who was with me, Stephen, said, you know, that, that, that costs about 75 grand per trip to bring those 15 people. Um, there has to be a better way. Right. Um, and that, that conversation got me started on kind of this multi-layer, multi-year approach. Like there's so much beauty in short-term missions. If I wasn't in Zimbabwe meeting that boy, I, I, who knows what I'd be doing. I'd be eating tacos in Texas right now probably, right? Right. Um, so we, do we need short-term missions? Yes. We just need to, we just need to kind of refocus what the meaning is. Um, a couple things that are vital. I don't want to go all over the world to multiple countries and just bear, I know people an inch deep and a mile wide. Like I want to, when I serve a group of people, I want them to be a second family. I want to engage in their community. I want to go through the struggles and the, and the pain and also the beauty and, and see the progress in the community. So I think short-term missions are, are can be powerful as long as we understand that God's called us to, to really engage long-term. And, and, and the, the, the risk is we become adventure seekers and we use local churches and pastors to, to get our adventure out as opposed to saying, man, we're partners in the gospel and we're going to journey together to see progress in each other's lives and each other's communities. And I think if we do that, 
the way God will use us and, and, and the change we will see will be amazing. If we continue to just, you know, kind of throw spaghetti in the wall and just do whatever we want to do based on emotion, I think that's when we'll, we can go all over the world and spend thousands of dollars and truly not even make a difference in the process. Absolutely. Oh, so, you know, there's, like I said, we could talk all day about this, but we, we unfortunately don't have time and it would take up way too much on the podcast, but I want you to be able to tell everyone how they can get a copy of this book. Um, if, if they're, if they're wanting it. Absolutely. Um, you could just email Phil and he's going to buy you a copy. <laughs> no, I'm really kidding. Nice. No. So <laughs> do we get a simple um, you can find it, you know, wherever books are sold. It comes out officially August 2nd, um, but in May, you can pre-order it today. Uh, we have a bunch of freemiums. We're actually talking about all these scenarios. We have a podcast set up with about eight different um, authors and, and speakers, folks like Sarah Bessie and Jen Hatmaker and Jonathan Merritt and some others who are going to jump on and like literally chapter by chapter walk through the book. Mm. Uh, we want it to be collaborative and community focused and we want um, we want folks to listen to multiple layers of people and conversations. So there'll be a bunch of freemiums for, for, from May to June or from May to, to August, but you can pick it up on Amazon, um, read it, share it, give it away. Um, and I hope, you know, my goal is for people to like literally close the book, realize like no matter who you are or where you're at, that God has given you talents and gifts to make a difference in the world. And so, um, hopefully we'll accomplish that goal and more folks will be helped in the process. Is there a website for those freemiums you're talking about? Yeah, absolutely. You can just go to um, doinggoodassimple.com. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah. Or you can just go to chrismarlow.me. Okay. Just, just, um, yeah. And on and that so, note, what's the help one now's website? Help one now, um, spelled out help one now.org. Um, help one now.org. So yeah, go on the website, check it out. You know, if you have more questions, feel free to email me, Chris at help one now.com. Um, but more than anything, you know, we really do believe that we can change the world by simple acts of good. And then, you know, last year in Haiti, Phil, we rescued, or two years ago, we rescued about 60 kids in Haiti, mm-hmm. all because everyday normal people said, I'm going to throw a garage sale party and donate the proceeds. And when we talk about doing good or simple, that's all we mean. You know, we can all find ways to make a significant impact in the world. That's so good. That's so good. Well, I have uh, three questions more for you that I want to just, uh, they're, they're pretty quick ones, but uh, obviously one would have a whole lot uh, we could talk about. But I just want to hear from you briefly how you, and you talk about it again, you talk about it throughout the book, but how is poverty alleviation intimately related and interconnected with orphan care? Oh, yeah, man. I, this is this is my passion. I think um, I just, I'm driven to see people have opportunity. Um, I, I can't, the, the, one of the worst moments in, in my everyday rhythms of doing this for a living is when I have to see someone in a food line and, and getting, you know, freebies, if you will, um, because I know it's crushing the dignity of that community and that mom or that dad. And so how do we empower um, people to not need to rely um, on us. And so as I, we began to, um, in Ethiopia a couple of years ago, we did this initiative called Keeping Families Together. We kept about 1,300 Ethiopian families together. And, and the reality was they were these kids were all on the edge of becoming orphaned. And our local leaders said, hey, if we don't help these families, then we're going to build an orphanage for the kids. And so what, is it, what did it mean to help the families? It was simple. We needed community development work, right? We needed to create jobs. We needed to, 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 to help this education system provide a better education. We needed to work with the local um, doctors to make sure – 
healthcare was accessible to the community. So if a child was sick or if a mom or dad was sick, they can have access to medicine to get healthy so they can continue to work and continue um, to, to, to take care of their kids. And uh, often the reason why kids are orphaned or abandoned is because moms and dads believe that, believe that these kids would have a better life living in an orphanage than living with them. And that's the problem we have to solve. Mm-hmm. And that comes with really the basics of life. Healthcare, job creation, and education are, are powerful to, to orphan alleviation. Yeah, that's great. Great. Uh the, your passion and, and mine and so many others is to see how we can get these kids, get these families strengthened, get them so that they don't, like you said, they don't feel so desperate that they feel like they can put their kids somewhere else yep. to have a quote, better life. And it's just something that, uh, man, that's one of the reasons we wanted to start this podcast, to be able to talk about this and say, how can we do it? How can we help each other to do it, to actually make it happen? So on that note, what, what have you read or listened to in the past year? That has most oh. impacted your thinking, other than your book, yeah. of course, which you've probably read a lot in the last year. Um, <laughs> but what has most impacted your thinking on the issues surrounding poverty alleviation and orphan care? Actually, one of the worst things in life is reading your own book. You may know that. It's like, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's hard sometimes. It's terrible. It's like watching <laughs> you know when you speak. Um, so there's a couple books that that have that have been great, and a lot of these, you know, I kind of live in this world of development and also this world of of leadership. Um, and also, you know, so layers here, but the book character by David Brooks, I think, mm. um, man, that right there, like one of the reasons we're dealing with poverty is because of lack of character. I mean, from mm. governments, um, you know, to, you know, the violence, you know, international justice mission talks about this, how violence is just destroying communities and it creates poverty. Then it creates orphans and it, the cyclical, um, thing goes back and back again and again. Um, so, um, the, the book character is really just kind of messing with my world and I love it. Um, also, here's another book. It's kind of crazy feeling. This will be a little different. And, um, you know, um, there's a book called um, Living with a Seal. And now here's the thing. It's not a Christian book, right? So right. if anyone gets it, but it's about the life of the seal who's training this billionaire entrepreneur out of New York. And what's fascinating to me is this understanding um, the seal's mindset and how that connects to poverty alleviation. And one of the things he talks about is like, when I go do these crazy workouts, all I'm thinking about is finishing. And so it's helped me a lot when I go into these communities and I'm like, I don't know if we're making progress or I don't know um, if we're gonna see change. And um, this mindset feels really helped me because I recognize, you know what? I'm in this for the long term. This isn't a sprint. It's a marathon. And I'm going to be working on things today that go far beyond my life. And so that book, which, you know, it's a unique book, but it's actually really helped me in a long term level recognize discipline, um, focus, um, execution, all of this stuff matters. And then kind of in the orphan care space, we're so all emotionally connected um, mm-hmm. that often we forget that actually we need these other scenarios also help us so we can do the Absolutely. work long term. Yeah, it's funny. I just listened to a podcast with a guy who wrote that book and it was so funny. He said, he said, uh, yeah, I, I just, they said, how in the world did you live with the seal for, for a month? And, and he just started laughing. He said, well, I just, I just wrote the guy and said, Hey, can you come live with me for a month? Yeah. And, uh, and I said, you know, the guy called back, he says, yeah, I'm crazy. And, you know, only somebody who, somebody who would ask me that they got to be crazy too. So sure, let's do it. And it was the yeah. funniest thing. Cause I was like, man, that's just crazy. I haven't read the book yet, but I definitely want to. And now well, you I tell you what's crazy about it feels like it's really cool because 
we got to think differently if we're going to try to innovate and solve problems. Um, and I think that's one of the things that book helped me right. learn to do is like, how can I think differently about orphan care? Um, what's being done really well, but are there other things we should be thinking about? And so in the last book, I'm just going to give props to my friend, Tony Moreta, his book, Ordinary hmm. is a phenomenal book, um, how to turn the world upside down. And so yeah. it's kind of, it's very kind of connected to my book, everyday normal people making a difference in the world. So those are my three books. Well, great. Well, thanks. And then the last thing, what one person has, uh, most impacted your thinking on how to best love and care for orphaned and vulnerable children. Yeah, absolutely. So it's a guy named John Alix Paul. He is our local leader in Haiti. Um, he has no platform. He has no books. He has no, he's, I mean, he, this guy is like the epitome of what it means to care and do amazing um, work for orphans and development. And he's really kind of my my guru. He, I, he's, I, he's discipling me. Um, he's got about 35 years of experience Many of the kids that he's raised up are now doctors and nurses and engineers and planted 12 churches. His last church plant was two years ago, and now it's about 2,500 people in one of the most significant parts of Port-au-Prince, influencing the most influential people. Um, and, man, he is – I've learned more from this Haitian leader than any person in the world. Um, and so I'm thankful for that, and um, I've been able to take what I learned from him and kind of into our other communities. And so um, here's what's amazing. We're always looking for these leaders who, who potentially, you know, maybe they wrote a book or they have a big following. Um, but, but I'm learning from folks who are kind of in the nitty-gritty doing the hardest work possible. And I walk out of these meetings saying, you know what, those are the real heroes of the story. Um, and, and people like me, man, I'm, I'm just doing what I can to serve them. That's so good. Well, thanks so much, Chris, for, for being a part of this today. And I just really hope that if nothing else, um, this podcast today and this interview today will convince people that, you know, two guys from California can actually have a conversation <laughs> that might help someone somewhere. Um, and I hope that Absolutely. that's the case. Yeah, and thanks again, man. And I, I look forward to continuing our conversation someday soon. Awesome. And Northern California is better than Southern California. See you guys later. <laughs> just kidding. Goodbye, y'all. Have a good day. Well, that was one of the most engaging conversations I've had in a very long time. And I hope that you guys out there learned as much from Chris as I did. And uh, on that note, Kelly, you know, what, what really stuck out to you from, the, from that conversation? Well, first off, I don't know about you, but I'm feeling a lot of guilt over here for the multiple walls of paint that I have um, put on a house or a home in, in mission trips that I've served on. Um, and I think maybe we all are just, wow, we've all done that. I think if you've ever been on a mission trip. And so just really starting to, to rethink what we're doing when we go in uh, with the purpose of serving a culture or a group of people. And I think that's a theme that we have seen throughout all of our conversations um, up to this point. So we would love to hear from you. What have you guys done on on different mission trips and what have you seen work or what are your ideas? So make sure that you reach out to us at thinkorphan.com and let us know those things. Another thing that stood out to me was just the role of discipleship and how Chris, is their organization is going in and really working with high capacity locals to empower them to do the work and are just being um, help helping them do those things with the purpose of releasing it back to them. And therefore, then they release it to even more locals. And so I think just that pattern of discipleship that we're seeing is really, really empowering. 
Yeah, I agree. And I don't know about you, but Chris also had just a bunch of resources that I just felt like going to read them right away. And, and I know that for, for us, you know, we can, we can uh, have these conversations and go immediately to it. For you guys out there, you're able to access all of these things that Chris was talking about and anything that any of the other uh, guests on the show have talked about at our show notes. And those are at thinkorphan.com. You can also contact us via Facebook or Twitter, uh, email, as as Kelly said. And so we, we really encourage you to do that. And and I want to hear from you too. I mean, I too, like Kelly, have gone on missions trips that I think Todd Guckenberger in a, in a previous podcast called them dud mission trips. And I don't know that it's ever a dud because no work of God goes, you know, goes void. Um, um, but at the same time, you know, I think we've learned things in these, and I don't think Todd necessarily thought it was a dud either all the way around, but I think we've learned things in the work we've been doing that I'd like to share with each other. So we know we can help each other to avoid the pitfalls, um, and the, and the negatives that we've, that we have experienced. And so I think that that's an, another way we can really help each other with this podcast and to engage it together. Thanks for joining us. We will be interviewing next week, Rebecca Nepp from Australia. We hope you've enjoyed today's Think Orphan podcast. For all the information in this week's podcast, please visit us at thinkorphan.com. You too can be part of the conversation. Send your questions to info at thinkorphan.com or join us on the Think Orphan Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again on the next edition of Think Orphan. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.